0: Welcome back to the Screenwriting Life. I'm Meg LaFauve.
1: and I'm Lorian McKenna. Today
0: we're chatting with writer director Karin Kusama, who is known for film classics like Girl Fight, Jennifer's Body, Destroyer and a new TV classic Yellow Jackets which she executive produces.
1: Karin's work is celebrated for its thoroughly subversive approach with feminist themes across multiple genres.
0: We can't wait to chat with Karen about her incredible career. But before we jump in, we'd love to discuss our week, or what we like to call adventures in screenwriting. So, first, welcome to the show, Karen. Welcome. Thank you so much. Hi, guys. This is so fun. Awesome. And uh, we'll we'll start off. I'll start off my week this week. Normally, Lauren goes first, but I'm going to go first because I don't have much to say. Because basically, my week is it's really hard to create boundaries. Well, first of all, for me, about anything, but especially around my creative life. Um, and I was using that as an excuse. And it is an excuse. And it's a valid excuse to do all the chores and all the stuff that I did. I'm just coming off of a huge show that I worked on. And I it's all those doctor's appointments you don't do for two years because you're so busy doing this thing that every weekend you're working. Um, So I'm doing all that, getting all those blood tests, doing all that. But uh, I'm just struggling to get back to the writing. And I think it might just be because I'm tired. I think I might just be tired. And it's easy to beat myself up about it and not have boundaries or borders around it. But sometimes you just have to say, or I'm tired and it's okay. It's really okay to not uh, write every day.
1: I I wonder too, if a boundary breaking is Beating ourselves up about not being able to give ourselves the time we need, right? Like, we should have boundaries with ourselves too, in that way. Like, it's okay that I'm not doing this. I don't have to now beat myself up. Perhaps. I don't know how to do that. Well, I'm just trying thinking to figure about
0: out. <laughs> am I not writing because I'm avoiding the creative because it's actually challenging me and digging deep? And I'm getting into what on the show, Karin, we call lava. Like, it's starting to make me feel very vulnerable. So I'd rather go do the laundry. Well, that never happens, but I'd rather go and weed or you know, I got to take care of that chore that's been on my to-do list forever. Or if I'm truly, the well's a little dry right now and it's better to go weed and be um, meditative and let my mind go. Uh, uh. So it's just, it's that kind of in-between stage. I'm still trying to figure it out Mm. exactly what this is and just trying to be aware of it Um, and aware of what my choices. I'm making choices right now. So as long as I'm aware of it, that I'm making that choice, I feel like that's the best you can do sometimes. So it's pretty simple, pretty simple week uh, that I think meant a lot of artists, no matter what their discipline, can find themselves in. Um, Karen, how was your week?
2: My week was actually pretty good. It's a it's a a looking backwards kind of week. Um, I have been asked to uh, have my first film, Girl Fight, uh, become a Criterion edition.
1: Oh, fantastic. So,
2: yeah, wow. Su- Congratulations. Yeah, super um, honored. I'm very excited by it. But it meant I had to like go through storage and look at boxes of stuff that's well over 20 years old and, um, you know, look at old storyboards from 25 years ago and and old scripts and scribbles and photos and ticket stubs and you know, it's it's kind of, um, it's funny, it was sort of a melancholy process, actually. It wasn't filled with, I don't know, a joyful nostalgia somehow. It had a more um, difficult quality to me. And I think it's just because as time passes, you you face time. You know you face time and i'm okay. definitely in a phase of my life where i'm facing i'm just facing the reality of time so um that was very much part of my week but uh necessary and instructive
3: All right, can i quickly ask i'm a huge like film preservation kind of criterion mm-hmm. nerd did you save all of this? Did you have to like go to an old production office? Like where were all these old materials around the movie? Um,
2: well, I'm still finding them. Um, in fact, there was a kind of hair raising several days where I couldn't find the negative because um, it was a film I shot on film. I, I My first three films were shot on film. And so uh, that's a very real, you know, question about how is the negative being stored where is it being stored and you just entrust these uh crucial elements of your film uh to be safely housed which is a complete um delusion really like we really shouldn't be assuming anybody else cares as much as you would do as much as much as as you know the, the creator might about their own work um so it's a, it's a, the elements are everywhere, both my personal elements, which are in a storage space and my office space and my upstairs closet. And then the actual film elements, um, it took a while to track down, but I finally found them at the distributor that, that distributed the film, but did not finance the film. They've just got it in a vault somewhere, but it was a hair raising, uh,
0: Wow! Sad. Several days.
2: Oh my God! Wow! Yeah, well, I'm glad you found it all. Yeah, yeah, but it was interesting because it was that kind of existential moment of having to face the question of what if the the negative is lost, or what if it's been destroyed, and or worse, what if nobody really cares enough to go into that giant room and get yeah. up on ladders, and because I I'm I'm sure it's a pain in the ass every single time some frantic person calls and says, can you go look for this element on a movie that's not making you any money anymore or potentially ever um, that, that you know, you, you're you're depending on human kindness, which I think is, you know, one of the ways we have to just like face our relative lack of control in the business that we're in, you know. All we can do is be kind back and yes, exactly <laughs> that's right. yes. so that's- I do
0: believe in karma because you have to you're like, I'm yeah, gonna be kind I'm yeah. just a nasty kind person and hopefully this comes back someday
2: yeah, exactly so. exactly
0: <laughs> Laurie, and how was your week?
1: my week i I was having a hard time sort of articulating it and then Karen, I was thinking about this interview with you and something you'd said about hunger and women's hunger. And it really resonated with me that that is what I have been struggling with. And, um, you know, I have been diagnosed with a binge eating disorder. I think most American women have some kind of disordered eating, whether it's diagnosed or not. And, you know, just that word binge, like I say, I'm a binge writer. Like I won't write for a while and then I'll write, 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 write. And we binge watch TV shows. You know, I eat sometimes so fast I gobble and I choke. And I, I just have this sort of existential hunger that I don't know how to manage sometimes. And I have this fear that if I don't fill the void, it will consume me back, which, which was inspiring for me because I write about women who break out of traps, who are in systems that weren't built for them and figure out how to, you know, disrupt and break out and that really speaks to this is sort of exploring this idea of my hunger and what that feels like. And, you know, being trapped in that, like I have to eat in order to quiet the hunger or it will consume me back, which is a trap, right? So just trying to get at what my lava is and where my, pain is, like, I feel really sad when I'm talking about this right now, because I know that behind the hunger is deep sadness. And yes, I have a therapist. And I will be talking about her with her about this. But just, you know, as a creative person, sort of being reignited with what I want to talk about. So but it really was your, your commentary about women's hunger that started me thinking more thoughtfully about this and not just operating like from an emotional point of view, like rage on the page. But if I can approach it from like the 30,000 foot view as well as the rage and find the management between those places, never balance, right? That's not a real thing, but like just managing that. So thank you for that. And Mm. I'm just really excited to talk to you a little bit more about that and what your discoveries Mm. are. So that's yeah, where I, think, I am this week. I, hunger, I and a, hunger, hunger and rage. Hunger and
0: rage. <laughs> and I think it's a beautiful segue for us to talk about that, um, uh, Karin, in your work, um, mm. hunger in your work.
2: I mean, it's interesting because uh, over the years I've started to identify more of my themes and more of my overriding or elemental interests. Um, and I mean, certainly I know that in the context of Yellow Jackets, where as a television show, we always knew we were gonna be looking at two sets of characters, but trying to uh, imagine that it's actually one continuous thread, right? Um, and what relates them on a, on a literal and narrative level is is this concept of, of their abandonment to the wilderness, their possible starvation, um, and what they were driven to do to to survive, all of those questions. And then of course, how does that refract or continue to impact the adult lives of those characters? Um, and so I, in that regard, I was thinking a lot about the notion of, of hunger, ambition, a sense of, expansive selfhood, I want to say. But I would say in my work generally, the overriding principle is presence in one's own body, this concept of occupying one's own body. And um, that was a huge question in my first film. What does it mean to to live in your own body, and I recognize now that that's something that continues in my work. Um, and in some ways, hunger is sort of um, a subset of that experience because it's a, a, a reminder of aliveness, or you know, sort of um, it's 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 pressing a go button that you must be alive to feel hunger, right? And of course the flip of that that's also interesting to explore particularly among women though i don't think it's only a problem among women is the question of starvation and self negation and what does it mean to annihilate the self and so i think about those things kind of a lot but in very literal terms <laughs> you know like am i here do i feel like i exist and by saying i exist does that give me agency or meaning in my own life by just acknowledging my selfhood, you know, and my physical self. So um that's sort of a big theme for me
0: so and, and a meandering kind of, a meandering no you're answer. not no no, it's a beautiful answer
1: that, it's in, uh, it speaks to me so much like the choices I see some of my characters having to make, you know, self-sacrifice or identity is like a huge theme in my work. Um, yeah, so, because yeah. what's
0: weaving within that too, and in, in a lot of your work is you know, you said ambition, like power, like what is our power? and, mm-hmm. um, you know, with Jennifer's body, you know, kind of the darker side of that mm-hmm. or the fears we have, I mean, I, I think what's beautiful about Jennifer's body is we can take different things out of it, so. Um, Mm -hmm. anything, anytime that I talk about a person's work, I know I'm mostly talking about myself and my own experience of it, Mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. In terms of, you know, I think a lot of women, including myself and whether we've been taught this or it's, you know, 3000 years of, of, of in our genes from being repressed, Mm -hmm. that we're being taught to fear our own power, right. That there is a kind of darkness to it, or it'll overtake us or we'll go, you know, I just, uh. I love those themes also uh, in, in your work because you're so brave about it. Um, You know The way that you do lean into the genre, be that horror uh, where we don't necessarily see these topics discussed from a, from a woman's point of view. So I guess there's not even a question. I'm just a fan. I can't help it. I'm fanning (laughs) out right now um, on just the depth of your work and what you take on. Um, And I, I just want to say I was kind of just, uh, I was just so driven to have you on the show because Mm. I was lucky enough to see you at a DGA panel. My friend took me um, on tone, Mm. which is a whole topic that we could do a whole show on because it's such a hard thing for people to grasp about tone. Um, But you were so articulate and so smart about the creative process and how you approach things and one thing you talked about that i found so compelling was about trying to find now you're speaking as a director but as a creative we all are trying to do this the genuine moment mm-hmm. right and and how do you get there in on the page with the actors you know what and i think it speaks to these themes that you're trying to get to the genuine like oh, a genuine female experience with her body or power Um, Can you talk a little bit about that and how you find that for yourself as a creative person?
2: Yeah. And, you know, it's funny because um, I think it's an evolving mission or an evolving process to get to finding that somewhat ephemeral notion of authenticity or genuineness in whatever it is that you're working on and of course in that conversation about tone part of what i know we were all trying to get at um up on that stage was this idea that even even when tones are wildly different from one another you're still looking for something about the experience to feel true um and how do we as artists hone that um that ability to really you know judge the truth of something and so again it's this interesting kind of refractive experience where for me i need to be completely in my body in order to feel whether or not i'm actually feeling anything i mean like that's the number one thing i think about when i'm sitting uh you know at a monitor and in front of me are actors and in my lap is the page. And I'm sort of trying to negotiate how they are translating the words on the page as actors. And there are times when if I really check in and I'm fully present, I feel nothing. And 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 then I know there's a problem, <laughs> you know, and then I oh, can wow. say, okay, something isn't quite um. Some, something isn't lighting up in me, I'm separate from this work. And that's generally not a place I want to be working from, like from a place of separateness. And so, um or division. And so that concept of the genuine moment, I think kind of hits me like in, in my gut, in my solar plexus. Um And it feels like that's something I have to really pay attention to is, um, am I, am I having a physical reaction, like a lively, literal alive and lively reaction to what I'm witnessing and listening to? And uh, that's something I, I'm trying to get better at paying attention to um, certainly as I like assess my own work, but also just sort of in the world, because, you know, think how much of the time for, for better or for worse, and perhaps as a survival mechanism from how noisy the world is, we just check out. Um, and so I sometimes I'm trying to just be more dropped in, you know, to my I own love
0: that. And you're really body. helping me see why I'm so tired <laughs> because I was on this project that demanded that kind of genuine full body experience to write it um yeah. over and over and over and over um and it is how i write almost like empathetically i don't even know if mm-hmm. that's a thing i don't even know mm-hmm. but if i don't feel it as i'm writing it i start to think oh i'm off which by the way is fine sometimes intellectually you have to go and do that version like no judgment mm-hmm. on that but the goal is is to get that deep that i'm feeling it in the moment and that's And, you know, after it's tiring, I would assume after directing, after you're tired because you have it's a physical experience. So thank you. That really helps me understand where I am right now.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I say about I say about movies, um, certainly directing them. Every movie takes takes its pound of flesh, you know, like I really um, I don't. I'm, I'm very lucky to be able to make choices and feel like I have choices in front of me. Uh, and I really have to ask myself careful questions about, do I want to experience for weeks and months and potentially years at a time, the experience of this story? Um, because I feel it very deeply myself and, and it is, it's super draining. Um, And I'm trying to figure out if there's a way to do it where it it doesn't take a pound of flesh.
1: But I haven't found
2: yet what the secret is
0: because
1: it's art. It's the cost. Yeah. I think this is really important to say. You know, we talk about, you know, if somebody comes to you with a project and you're not really connecting to it, but you say yes, just to get something going. Mm -hmm. But how do you do it if you can't find that, you know, excitement in your body? If you're not willing to live in that for as long as it takes, um, it's really hard to fake. Like without yeah. finding something that you're genuinely electrified by in that project, and that's what we mean by your take on a project, right? If someone brings you a book and you're like, eh, but you find a take something that excites you and electrifies you about mm-hmm. it. That's what that means.
0: Yeah, like a body take on it. Not yes. just an intellectual take, but yes. a body take. That's yeah.
1: such a great way. I love that thinking about things that way, you know, mm-hmm. as I'm trying to figure out what am I going to work on right now? What am I going to work on next? It's sort of like, oh, where am I getting that charge that's either terrifying or exciting or makes me want to throw up or, you know, whatever <laughs> it is. And so looking for that charge, I'm sort of shopping for that, what you're talking about, the the body yeah. experience. yeah. That's really I, I mean, that. lovely. it's, and it's the, the idea of gut instinct, having.
2: Having some kind of truth that's worth checking in with, I think that's some of what we're talking about, too.
0: Absolutely. And then you also something else you said in that panel, I, th- I think, is this now taken into action um, that you in the middle of all of this, you're also trying to stay open to surprise and to not know. Yeah, um, and you meant you said that as a self investment, which I just blew my mind. I was just like, "That's amazing!" Because we usually think of surprise or not knowing as bad. Like, mm-hmm. oh my god, something's wrong with me. I don't know. I don't know. You know, I again, perhaps I'm talking mostly about myself, but um, I'd le- you know. Can you talk a little bit about that in terms of your process that you're actually trying to cultivate that surprise and not knowing? Well, I think
2: it's a little bit of a. It, it's a little bit of a of a of a cultural delusion or an overemphasis on on um control because i was going to say knowledge and wisdom i'm all for it like i i believe in knowledge i believe in wisdom i believe you can can gather and accrue both uh, particularly over time with experience um But I think a lot of the time when we want the answer to something, we want control over a situation that we don't have control over. And most of what I find I'm doing as a director is facing the areas in which I don't have control, the areas in which I need to distill the meaning of something even further because I don't control the resources that I have over the thing I'm trying to do. And so the one area that I think is important because so many gems emerge out of letting go of the notion of control is to be curious and to sort of uh, almost relinquish a sense of mastery over a situation so that perhaps a new path emerges, a new choice from an actor, a new story interpretation I hadn't considered before, a new way to see something imagistically that's as bracing or pure as the thing I had hoped to do before, but was just told I can't do, you know, like there's so many day to day moment to moment, um, you know, slaps in the face or getting, you know, cold water poured on you. And so I think curiosity keeps that uh like an open door as opposed to feeling like stuff is just shutting in your face and um and that way i don't feel the toll of it as so exhausting in the moment doesn't mean over time it's not exhausting it is but that's the that's the
0: idea and i think that beautifully applies to writing there's many a time that you're writing a scene and you're starting to feel it's not authentic. I don't feel this in my body. And you can start slamming doors out of panic, right? Like, then I guess I'm stuck. And this whole thing, we <laughs> should throw it away. Versus, okay, curious. It's not working. Why? Why? Yeah. Where's, what, do I like anything in here? Like, just to start you know, asking questions. Yeah. And, and I I I write because I love when the new path appears. And mm. to me, it's like almost an, a conversation with the universe. Because I don't, would never have gotten to that path if I hadn't written this shitty version and had this, you know, this thing put upon me that I have to do it right now or whatever limitation in a weird way, mm. it creates this whole new uh, better thing that you couldn't have imagined this morning when you woke up, but because you went through this, there it is. And it sounds very much like what you're talking on, on set, like the actress bringing you something, be curious. It's going to create right here in front of you. Uh, mm-hmm. I just think it's so beautiful.
2: It's funny. Uh, my, one of my mentors, when I was a young writer and young still in, completely inexperienced director. I worked for a filmmaker named John Sales for many years. And oh boy,
0: John Sales,
2: Yeah, so he read my first drafts of Girl Fight and they were so bad. I mean, really like pretty painful paint by numbers. Um,
1: Which you just almost, had to dig up, right? And reread? Yeah, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Well, so you really so, and, know-
2: how they were written now. <laughs> totally, totally. And there was a kind of um, almost like a placeholder quality to the writing in which it was like, I I, I was saying, this person will get filled in and become human eventually. This relationship will be better understood by me eventually. But right now, it's like I'm just sort of, um, you know, making a blueprint for a really really ugly building. And John so generously read one of those early drafts. And first of all, he didn't attack it outright, which totally could have happened and I would have expected. But instead, he said, I really feel like I could see the story here. I could see it. And I think an exercise that would be useful for you is to think of every single character that you're putting in this script, just what would their story be? If, if the emphasis were on them, how would they be a full character? How would they be a fully realized human? And it was so interesting because he wasn't asking me to make anyone a bigger character or give them more to do. It was more just be with these characters more fully and more freely and don't give anyone short shrift. And that exercise of just really sort of having to think and feel as some of the characters might, I mean, it sounds so simple, but for me, at as a young artist at the time, it really kind of blew my mind because it gave me permission to be curious um
0: yes
1: it's a good reminder at any type type of project at any point in your career sure like if something's not working like wait a minute why why is this character sort of running around bumping into walls like what do they want where are they coming from um one thing i wanted to ask you about curiosity and sort of being open to new ideas the discipline it takes to just do one at a time right Mm -hmm. i do this when i when i sort of go i have a little guided visualization process I do to go meet Mm. my character where they are and like sort of let them take me where they're going to take me. And I can get a little overwhelmed at first, like all these different doorways in the hallway, which one should we go in? But I have to remember one at a time, Mm. right? And eventually I'll find the one that feels true, but Mm. it takes a lot of discipline to pick. And Mm. I wonder, you know, so much of being a writer and a director is about choices and Mm. sort of how can you talk a little bit about how you've like honed that craft in terms of knowing knowing when you've made the right choice or the you need to make another one sort of it's a little bit of a woo-woo question but just sort of
2: yeah it's it's a but it's also I mean it's the essence of what we all do and so it's it's interesting to to reflect on it and really ask myself how I've arrived at a place where I'm open to trusting my own decision-making apparatus. Um, And, and I think some of that has to do with, I mean, to kind of get woo-woo right back at you. Like it's, it's a little bit about claiming Um, claiming the space or imagining that my, my voice or my creative process or my imagination is as big or as small as any artist next to me. Like that I don't really, on a good day, I'm not really looking at myself in in comparison, um, which I think is a big part of how we sort of ruin ourselves as artists. Yes. Yes. Um, And so if I can just sort of focus on my side of the street, um, it gives me a little bit of an opportunity then to go through that exercise, which is an exercise of discipline, of just checking in with the feeling or lack of it in the work. And that always starts for me on the page. Like, um, But that process of applying a, a, a disciplined attention to whether it's a script, a performance that's happening live in front of me while I'm directing, a cut of a film or a TV show that I've made, I'm always having to check in with this form of meditative attention in which I am also actively, uh, aware of, of feeling or not feeling or, or, or disruption or not, or, you know, all of the feelings that kind of run through us. And, and so that's something I've gotten better at, despite the fact that the world seems to make that harder to do now than ever before.
1: Yes. It's so much of what you're talking about at the beginning, though, claiming your body, right? Yeah. Giving yourself, not even giving yourself permission, but like, I am entitled to have this focus, yeah. which is so hard for me sometimes, because there's always so many other things I should be doing, right? Like, sure. laundry or paying attention to my husband or anything else, but like, the validating. Women have been
0: taught so much yes. to repress and yeah. be passive aggressive and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, that- to go into your body can sometimes feel very dangerous because there's a
1: lot of stuff in there. It sounds very Uh, exciting and very scary (laughs) to think about it that way. Like I am going to coexist. So this is a sort of sidebar, but I was ill a couple of years ago and I got to take, got to, because it was amazing, got to take five days of prednisone, but I have never felt (laughs) more entitled to exist in my body. No self-doubt no worry about anyone else. I got up every morning and I wrote and I had no, and it was good writing at the end of it. I was, I read it. I was like, oh, I finished my pilot. Like (laughs) I, but I had that feeling of like, I was like, I can wrestle a bear and eat it. You know, yes, I was on drugs. Let's just be very clear. (laughs) I've told all my physicians not to give me prednisone ever again. Like everybody knows, but but having that little touch of like, wow, this is what it feels like to fully inhabit my physical body which and has still have a connection to my brain you know I just I it just occurred to me that like I get to decide I don't have to have some kind of outer validation or permission, in order to oh, or permission. that thing in myself or permission yeah so thank you yeah <laughs> now <laughs> your when- gift your gift <laughs>
0: Now, when you're, t- we're talking about this uh, experience of our creation and manifesting our creation while still staying, well, using our body almost as a rudder of, of am yeah. I connected? Now you're going to bring in as a director, you're going to bring in a writer or a showrunner, right? And you're having to do this together, right? So mm-hmm. as a creative, how does this process work or the challenges of it? Once you have somebody else in their body, you know, and I think mm-hmm. that's what I'm coming off of is there were people in a room where we we all had to get down into that genuine moment, but it had to get so deep that everybody could experience it, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, I mean, that's part of being a leader. Um, you know, it's really important to model the very thing you're asking of everyone else. I think that's a really great way to help, to like help the process along and kind of, and and start that conversation. Um, but it's interesting because for me, I do still look at things from this sort of um, stealth. I start really small and I just like to claim it as really small. Like I'm not trying to say by being the director, my voice takes over, in a way anyone else's, except when I'm writing, when I'm working with a writer, I read the script like it's this living document. And I go through the exercise of turning off my phone and, and reading in one uninterrupted pass where I make notes almost as if I'm doing like um, a figure drawing class. I'm making notes as I'm reading about whether or not I'm feeling something. And like, if I feel momentum, if I feel dynamic shifts, if I feel themes emerging, if I feel like the images and a visual strategy is emerging, I I just write shorthand down. And then when I'm stuck or losing interest, I write that down too. And then I share that experience with the writer, which I'm sure is not always welcome um, if for, for people who work in a different way, you know, like why would they care necessarily about what I'm feeling while I'm in that process? But as the director, I feel like I'm the translator.
0: Yes, absolutely. You
2: know, that what's on, what's on the page. And so when there are moments where the translation is getting sticky, I like to say to the writer or the showrunner, here's where I'm stuck. Um, Here's where I'm not finding the the truest voice um, emerging. That And so I start that way and then hopefully it's a back and forth.
1: I find it uh, giving feedback to other writers or getting feedback, the tendency to like not be so self-aware, right? Like I start to fill in solutions, right? Which is you never mm-hmm. want to do that, right? So you really mm-hmm. do literally say to a writer, I'm feeling stuck here. So that that you can workshop how to do that together or you send them off to figure it out. And like and when you're working with writers, what's the dream writer? How do they respond to that? Yeah, that's a versus a writer that
0: you're like, this is not a fruit for relationship.
1: Right. right.
0: Well,
2: I mean, I, I should back up and say that, you know, like three of the movies I've made, I've made with my husband and his writing partner. So we work And as they're the a
1: best writers to trio. work with hands they're, down, right? They're I stop, mean the best. They're
2: they're pretty great. <laughs> Phil Phil Hay and Matt Manfredi, they're great people. Um obviously one of them is incredibly great because he's my husband. Um but they're good friends and we um and we operate like almost like siblings in, in our creative life, because we defend our ideas. We get kind of messy. We, you know, I'll, I'll throw up my hands and say, no, I just don't see it that way. And they'll throw up their hands back at me and say, I disagree. I mean, you know, we get, we, I feel like over the years we've realized there is a safe way to kind of muscle through some of the tough elements of these creative conversations, which can take on the life of a life or death conversation. And that's, I think, another thing to be sensitive to is when when people go through the time to commit words to the page, they are doing something most of us avoid our entire life doing.
1: What? No. So, well,
2: but I mean, you know I'm what I kidding. mean? It's like, it's, I'm kidding. Yeah, right. It's so, yeah. Okay. So it's like, it's so in the same way that being an actor is so hard to do, being a writer is so hard to do. And if you commit yourself to it, as Phil and Matt do, as you all do, it's like you're joining. a a, a nunnery or a monkhood or like, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a hard life, you know, it's a hard life. And I'm very sensitive actually to the rage directed at writers because it's like, we resent the power they have. We, it, it's almost like writers to me is a great stand-in for women generally. Like we resent the power of creation so deeply. We're so afraid of it. We're so threatened by it. And so the first people in the process of filmmaking that routinely get shat upon are the writers. I mean, and it's just a, it's a shock to see how it happens every single or how frequently it happens. So I'm very like sensitive to just the the bullshit honestly that this business offers the great writers, you know. And the writers who are looking to develop their craft, improve what they do. Like it's like we're all kind of growing and and I just think it's really interesting that we're in, a, in in an ongoing moment of resentment toward the people who actually do something that's truly mysterious to most of us, almost as mysterious as giving birth. Not quite,
1: not quite, but, but getting there, you know? Both are write. extremely physical and painful, I will <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> say. <laughs> and then when you finish, you're like, wait, what is that? Okay, here I go. I guess I made that thing. I'm never doing that again. Okay, well, I will. <laughs> Or, or the, the amnesia will set in, so yeah, that exactly. Sure yeah. that you oh,
0: will
2: let's do it again. again.
1: Let's oh, you have to have script.
0: amnesia after every project you do. You have to have some sort of amnesia take over you.
1: Yes,
3: exactly. Do you exactly. think, Karin, the fact that you wrote your first feature is part of the reason you have such a empathetic and supportive view towards writers? Because sometimes I feel like writers who haven't been through the grind of the eighth draft after notes might not have the same level of awareness of how fucking hard it is pardon my french but i'd be curious if that weighs in
2: oh my god i mean writing girl fight was so humbling even after it went well it was like almost traumatizingly humbling and that's what writers do as a job draft after draft project after project you know like I after I, I wrote then a couple of other things after Girl Fight that I just could not get made. And honestly, that was a big part of me turning to other people's work and recognizing that some scripts I could sort of see the application of my skills as clearly as my own work. And sometimes in the case of Phil and Matt, sometimes more clearly. And so I I have, yeah, I have a lot of deep respect and empathy for what writers do and endure as their art form. Um, And yeah, having done it myself, it's, it's, I mean, the loneliness of that job is intense and, I remember being a young filmmaker right after making my first film that I had written and everyone saying, well, how did you do it? You know, how did you, you know, and I was trying to answer, like I needed to survive. I was, I was doing any job I could to live. I was painting houses. I was working in restaurants. I was babysitting and I was getting up at five in the morning to write for two hours before I did all of that because writing wasn't paying me so I mean I was very in touch with the uh the the trial of it and still am I don't know how people do it I don't know how writers do it to be honest as I stare at all of you
1: um,
2: you know what I mean <laughs> like I, I actually I don't, don't I
1: mean, look it's, bright-eyed and happy <laughs> it's it's just it's it's um
2: they're 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 is some thread of masochism in it, but I also relate to it, sympathize with it, and want to work alongside it a lot.
0: And when you're working with actors, right? So another creative being in front of you, um, do you have any thoughts or tips to people? Because I'm sure some of our uh, writers listening are also directors yeah. to getting that authentic performance. Or to working with the actor in that moment or in rehearsal. You I know, mean, what is your approach to the to the actor?
2: Uh well, obviously everybody um there it's not a one size fits all and it's important to kind of so any any advice I offer should be taken with that grain of salt because um it's there are some actors who show up with a with a very highly developed sense of what they want to do with a role. And you've presumably hired them because you want that, that level of preparation and that level of uh, skill and craft applied to the work without a lot of conversation. Um, But I do feel like what is really important when you're working with actors and you're not feeling the truth of the thing. I just feel like I like to, to strip everything down. And um an actor who I worked with said to me that he has been so thankful that at some point my direction was let's just hear you say the words. I, I don't like let's not even let's not weight it or freight it with meaning. Just say the words. Let's start to hear what the words sound like and then we can start to break down intent and emphasis, but let's just hear it, you know? And so on the one hand, I hope what that does is allow actors to give themselves a little bit of a break, but also to respect what's on the page enough to just um, start getting nimble with, with what the words are and kind of treating them as these, interesting breadcrumbs that help form that that character. So I like to kind of not charge it filled with meaning at the beginning and see what happens. I mean, I don't know if you guys experience this, but sometimes it's like, it's at the table read when an actor is sort of throwing stuff away where you're like, okay, there, okay, we're getting to the truth of something there because they don't feel all the eyes on them. And it's when all the eyes are on that suddenly things get like sort of loaded up with like too many ornamental flourishes. And sometimes you just need to simplify, you know. And so I say that a lot too. Let's do a pass where we just simplify and see where that takes us.
1: What do you find creatively, like, do you have any subconscious things that sneak into your work that you don't actually notice until someone points it out to you? Like, I know you're a director and you're very intentional, but I, I, you know, I'm a writer, I'm intentional, but sometimes I'll write something and someone will say, oh, this connects to this and this connects to this. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, what? I didn't do that on purpose. Um, It's not a trick question. I'm just curious. No, that's an interesting <laughs> question.
2: I mean... I am very much a um do you remember there's there was a Pauline Kale book of criticism called Kiss Kiss Bang Bang yes. um mm-hmm. I think it was her first book of criticism maybe and it was just meant to to refer to the italian tradition of love stories and shoot 'em ups right and i definitely think there's a part of me that is looking at If you break down those four words, the kiss-kiss, I think there can be momentous memory that we apply to first love, to transgressive love, to uh, dying love, that in some fundamental way gets worked out on film. And it's often you know, the, the, the simplest of, of things we see on film, you know, a kiss or not a kiss, that kind of thing. And I, I find that that's a thing in my work where I'm like, Oh, that's like a first kiss between characters or whatever. Um, I fall back on that, but I think it's because it's like an elemental human um, imprint of of connection or not right and then i think the element of surprise that comes from bang bang um is definitely something i unconsciously or subconsciously like to work with like i like to work with the sense of um reversals um and sometimes that's like literally sonic or visual um but i know that that's something that i just find endlessly satisfying.
0: And so well done in your work too, I will say. Abby. Oh,
2: thank you. I uh, appreciate that. So
0: well done in your work. So um, I'm going to ask a question selfishly because I have you here, which is um, the next project I'm going to write is a horror movie. Mm. Um, it's, it's not a genre. I, you know, love meaning I don't, I don't know every horror movie ever made. I, mm-hmm. I'm fascinated by them psychologically and, mm-hmm. um, and I'm doing my work, my genre work. I'm going in, I'm mm-hmm. looking at all the different versions. I'm doing that. Um, I'm also writing it with my husband, who's a writer. Mm-hmm. Um, so I will, I will, I'll ask the questions off the podcast about working uh, with your husband uh, and all of that, because that's so specific. But um, in approaching horror, especially oh, the irony is that this is a, uh, it's a horror movie about a marriage. There you go. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is going to go either really well or mm-hmm. <laughs> we'll see Um <laughs> In approaching horror, especially with a female character, um, mm-hmm. I I feel a lot of appropriate um, attention needs to be paid to that the female experience of horror because mm-hmm. so much of the tradition is the male experience of it, and often the women are the victims of it. Um, do you have any advice to our horror writers in the audience about the genre, how you approach it, how you have approached it in the past? The pitfalls you might have uh, Mm -hmm. accidentally stepped into and had to Mm -hmm. pivot, um, blind spots, anything? Well, I think
2: um, over the years, I have definitely, um, in acknowledging in my own work, the impact of violence, um, I've definitely had to practice asking the question, okay, why are we witnessing this violence? Toward what end? For what reason? Uh, And oftentimes, in the mechanics of horror, it is the, 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 the pulling away from violence or the withholding of it that actually is most frightening for an audience as they're watching. It's the waiting for something to happen that is far more frightening than something terrible actually happening. Mm. And so as I, I've gotten older, I think I, I tend to find myself kind of bored by some of the violence that comes out of horror films. Now Um, if it's, if it's, lazy or undisciplined, you know, like um I always think about like, you know, when you put like too many toppings on a pizza and then suddenly it's just like too heavy and you've got to eat it with a knife and fork. And then it's a <laughs> pizza. Yeah. Like, it's kind of like, that's what a horror movie can be. You know, like, how can you find the scares that come out of the uncanny that come out of miscommunication out of bafflement, out of the mysterious, the unexplainable. those, I think, are much more frightening threads in horror that then justify the conscious and intentional application of violence, you know, within the story. Um, and I'm not I, I'm not saying all horror movies are violent, but there is an inherent tension there in which we are expecting violence to be done to us or by us, right? And so I'm always now more interested in what leads up to those events and then really trying to uh, be certain that those events um, are as interesting as everything that comes before it.
0: Does that make sense? absolutely very very articulate and helpful i was
1: thinking about the movie misery while you were talking Mm -hmm, right mm -hmm. just the threat of that sledgehammer i mean when i saw that movie the woman in front of me literally jumped up into my lap like jumped up over the (laughs) and i was like "Ooh, i'm not sure how i feel about this experience (laughs) it was very scary but i loved it Yeah, I
0: think there is such an opportunity in horror to talk about the, our, our the human condition uh, in terms of those darker urges, or the uh, or just how we project onto it. You know what what is I I would think, and I'm going to find out that it's important to know as a creator writer why is this in the movie for the character versus just random, you know, scares, which I'm sure will be lots of notes of, you know, more scares or whatever. But, you know, to me, it's always so important. Like, well, why does she need to have that particular scare? Like why is that scary to her and therefore to us? I don't know. Is that a conversation you've had in terms of why you're putting it in the show or the, or the movie?
2: Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I think, you know, you're getting to something about, you know, empathy with and for your, for instance, your main character, right? So, I mean, I think in a very complicated way, uh, you know, a classic of the genre is something like Rosemary's Baby, in which we're very much uh, centered on Rosemary Woodhouse's experience, though. We're also witnessing this cruel dismissal of her um, as a character. And the film can ask the question sort of, is is she worthy of centrality in this story, right? We could be asking the question, is the movie gaslighting her, not just the world depicted around her? And I think the brilliance of the film is you realize the movie isn't gaslighting her. The world is. We are seeing how that is happening. And she is horribly vindicated uh, and victimized by that, you know, suspicion that something terrible is happening. Right. And so all of that terror to me comes out of caring about her, even though We're witnessing the ways the world around her doesn't care about her or take her seriously or, you know, and so it's an interesting question about um, how to be empathetic without. um, Kind of laying all your cards out on the table.
0: Right. And and how to create a situation in which a female character might be victimized. And Mm -hmm. yet her power base is not just victimization. Absolutely. And I think a lot of writers, men and women, get this mixed up. That feeling sorry for somebody is not the same as connecting to them as a character, right? Or victim power. Victim power is limited. Again, I'm not saying a character cannot be victimized in a movie. That's not what I'm talking about. People are victimized. It's just our interest is in how they respond, correct? Like that's yes. their agency in that or where they're going to find a piece of agency, or right? right? I mean...
2: Oh, for sure. And I mean, I think it's funny because, it, you know, this kind of relates to all the conversation that, that happens around Yellow Jackets in which there's this idea that sort of trauma is its own narrative engine. Um, and I'm not actually... I don't think that's what the show is attempting to work out. I I do think it's interesting how much people glom onto that idea of the show. But I hope what the show is getting at is we are so much more, we are even more interesting than our trauma you know, we are, or or the capacity is there for us to be more interesting than just the worst thing that ever happened to us. And so that's something I think horror can really explore in an interesting way. Um, and also, of course, I mean, as it relates to women and it gets tricky because I think there's definitely threads of horror that are expressing so much male terror of powerful women. But horror is typically a space where the monstrous is something we explore because it's, you know, repressed generally in society. And so there's a part of us that loves a monstrous woman. I know I do. And that's because I want room to be, feel, Imagine my own monstrousness without somehow feeling aberrant or completely deformed. You know, um, that is so such it's a powerful.
0: It's so powerful what you just said. I hope everybody rewinds the podcast and listen to that again. Okay,
1: <laughs> that's nice. Which but is I, I like room.
2: You know, it's all is why about I making...
1: liked and hated misery with Kathy Bates. Right? Like I yes. could see myself in that spot in that place but also oh my god I hope I doesn't get that bad but also like that's that could be a thing right I I just that that some a woman could do that I think that was I mean I I think that was the first time I saw something like that that a woman could be the bad guy and so powerfully and so manipulative Manipulate. you guys know what I'm trying to say I do I'm very articulate welcome to the show uh but like that for me was uh Really exciting at the time. Uh yeah.
2: I, I yeah. mean, women women we we definitely want and need space in the culture to be villains. Um, I mean, I think, you know, there that the, we have fewer to choose from, but it's like, you know, Medea's no slouch, Medusa's no slouch, Lady Macbeth, no slouch. Like these are interesting people who are, you? maybe you argue are kind of shaped by the culture, but hopefully that's the conversation we're having about all villains, right? And obviously, I hope that we have room for all different versions of ourselves as humans that might act like villainous one day and Heroic, the next. I mean, right, because
0: traditionally, we if we're villainous or powerful, you're going to get burned at the stake. Like either totally. way, you either direction you go, you're going to get burned yeah. at the stake. Um, it, because you can't be that as a woman. You have to go right down that center line. Right, you got right down the good girl center line. Don't be too powerful. Don't overshadow them, and boy, you better not be evil or a villainous. But our power, our agency sits on those sides. It sits in the power. It can sit in the villainous. Not that we're going to behave badly or act on it, but you have to be able to feel it, to know it, to know yourself, to oh, know yeah. your power base. Um, and I think it's what your movies do so well is, is they're unflinching and trying to go explore that that the power that's sitting on both sides of that little tiny narrow road we get to walk as females Mm -hmm. and as men, there's plenty of men because of their upbringing or because of what happened, humans can get stuck into a box. Right. Um, And I just think that's so powerful. I did want to ask one practical question for our listeners, which is a lot of our writers, I'm sure, are considering directing their own movies, um, Mm -hmm. either going out and gorilla doing a gorilla uh, uh, shoot or um, going forward and trying to get the real cash. Do you have any advice for writers who are going to direct their own work and that process of becoming the director or or making that shift?
2: Well, it's almost like um, the the painstaking process and the attentive process toward writing the screenplay is its its own exercise to, you know, adhere to and respect while you're in it and then when you're directing it's almost like all of that has to go out the window and you have to now start not looking at the words on the page but really looking at the life in front of you the words being spoken by real humans in spaces that are presumably meant to feel like real places and so what are you feeling is it working and i think it can be really hard, I would think, if you're also the writer of your own material, to check in with that and hone that skill, because it's kind of like a letting go of everything you worked so hard to achieve to get the script to the page, right? And and then it's almost like you have to say, "I'm, I'm saying goodbye to that now and have to deal with what's in front of me right this second, which might be very different than what your expectations were as you were writing. And um, so it's very much again about complete presentness and, and just asking the hard question of like, is it working? It was brilliant I thought when I was writing it, but is it working now? And being open to the answer being no, and 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 then once you're open to it being open to pivoting and interrogating the thing you love i think that's a really i do that i have to face that with the scripts i love regardless of who's written them and just say you know i thought this was all going to like make perfect sense and <laughs> it's it's actually not really working you know like and being again it's kind of like that thing about surprise I just think it's really worth it to, um, to be open to, you know, to kind of every, every surprise, even if you perceive it initially as unwelcome, having, having the opportunity to get you deeper into the work.
1: Thank you. I think my takeaway from this is personally is be present in my body. Yeah. Just be present. It's so hard. I mean, that can take practice just
0: to our listeners that can take practice. It can feel very frightening. It can feel like there's, you know, it's heavy or it could be, you could feel like you're going to fly away. Like this is a practice to even start to just, you know, forget meditation, not meditate, just sit for five minutes and be in your body and then get up and walk away. Like if you can't do it for longer, it it is a, it can be a practice for people to get in there. Totally.
1: Thank you. Totally. Totally.
0: This has been such an amazing talk. Uh, I just feel so lucky to have had you on the show. And um, thank you so much for being here. We always end with the same three questions. So we're going to ask you our last three questions. Okay. um, Which begins with, what brings you the most joy in your creative life?
3: Mm.
2: Finishing. (laughs) Love it. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) I (laughs) wish, I wish, I wish it, it, I wish it wasn't so hard to achieve and so simple, but that's about it.
1: That's true. Absolutely. All right. Well, the second question then is what pisses you off in your creative life?
2: Mm. Honestly, I think the thing that pisses me off the most is self center self-censorship, you know, my own urge to imagine smaller dream smaller um take the crumb instead of the unknown um any urge that in in which i sort of like indulge that instinct um really pisses me off after the fact
3: Karen, if you could go back and have a coffee with your younger self, um, kind of right on the precipice of her creative career, what would you tell that Karen? What advice would you give?
2: Oof. Um, you're great the way you are. Like I, you know, like I think, I'm still needing to give that advice to myself now. And it strikes me that it's something I wish I had understood I needed then, um, which is that as hung up as I am in my own hunger and ambition, back to the themes of the beginning of the show, uh, I'm actually fine the way that I am. And as deeply painful as it is for me to admit, if I were to make never make another thing again, I'd be fine. It would be okay. I would be okay, And so you would be okay. You would. So. Right. So I mean, but I don't I as somebody who fundamentally doesn't believe that I wish I'd heard some version of encouragement in the other direction much, much earlier.
0: That's my answer. It's a great answer. And it's very powerful for our female listeners to hear. You're allowed to be hungry. And you're allowed to want. And you're allowed to be ambitious for sure we are allowed and you're great when you do that that's where your power is ladies that's when you're great um so this has been so amazing I'm um, just ah, thank you so much thank it's you. been amazing um, Karn. thank you so thanks. much
2: it's been a real pleasure I Now that I see all your faces, I hope I will see them again in another context.
1: Oh, we'd love that.
2: Maybe we'll see you on the line. Oh, yeah. I actually plan to go this week. So awesome. Yeah.
1: So remember, in the meantime, keep writing and you are not alone.